Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Welcome to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm Matthew of castingacross.com, where I explore the quarry and culture of fly fishing. Thank you for tuning in for hard-hitting 2020 election coverage. Just kidding. This is the 91st episode of the Casting Cross Fly Fishing Podcast, and so we'll be talking about going outside with a fly and a fly rod and uh, trying to catch a trout or a bass or a carp or just getting away from 2020. So uh, back in the 47th episode, I believe, I did three things I wish I knew then. Three things I wish I knew then. So I started fly fishing when I was a teenager, and that's a great time to learn because you have some expendable time, you have some expendable money, maybe not a lot, you might have a little bit of freedom. And so I was able to get out and really just dive into fly fishing headfirst and really develop a passion for it and start to build up a skill set that I have carried with me some 20 plus years later. That being said, looking back, from my mid-30s back to my mid-teens, I can say there's some things that I really wish I would have either known then or things that I would have spent more time doing then. And so back on that first podcast, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes over at castingacross.com, I talked about how I wish I would have paid more attention to the guides I had back then, so the formally paid fishing guides that I had. That would have had more persistence as far as getting out different times, less than ideal times. And lastly, that I would have recorded my experiences more. So I'm not going to go into too much detail on those three things that I wish I knew that I've already talked about. But definitely go check out that podcast. It's it's worth your time. It's, it's a good, quick listen. I listened to it this morning as I was getting ready to record this podcast. So check that one out. But this week, I'm going to talk about three different things. Three things that if you, know, you have that opportunity, whether you are a teenager and you're listening to the podcast or if you are in your 60s and you're listening to the podcast, but you've just started fishing, these are things that maybe would help you out if you gave a little bit more attention. Similarly, if you've been fishing for 30 years or three years, 
These are things that maybe you haven't given as much attention as you could. Your experiences are different than mine. Your proclivities are different than mine. All of those things uh, are variables, but these are probably some things that have a level of commonality between you and between me and between all fly anglers. So these are things that I wish I knew then that I still need to focus on, but things that in the 20 years since I've started fly fishing that I really have come to appreciate. The first thing that I wish I knew then was that I would have tried more water. I would have tried more water. What does that mean? Well, as I've talked about plenty of times on the podcast, I started fly fishing on some spectacular streams. Now, for being on the East Coast, I, I feel like I had a pretty great experience of fishing on some premier spring creeks and mountain streams in the mid-Atlantic. And everywhere I went, there was fish. It wasn't a matter of, are there fish in this riffle, run, or pool? It's, can I catch the fish that I know are in this riffle, run, or pool? A lot of the streams that I fished were special regulation, catch and release only, fly fishing only. And there had been a population of fish that had warranted that designation and that supported those streams maintaining that designation. So there was lots of fish. There's a lot of fish to be had. So again, I was not really trained in prospecting for trout. I was trained for, there's a trout here. How do I catch it without spooking it? Or because this fish gets pressured so much, how do I wear it down? How do I just keep fishing to it until it finally takes what I put in front of it? And so it's really a war of attrition. You know, it's not taking the dry, switch to the nymph. It's not taking the nymph, switch to the midge. It's not taking the midge, switch to a streamer. It's not taking the streamer, switch to a different dry until finally you catch it. So you do learn things in those situations. You learn about the best flies to use in certain circumstances. You learn how to fish for picky fish. But either because I was fishing in those streams or I was fishing in stock streams in, in Virginia where they put fish. And so I knew there was fish there as long as I was on the river in the month kind of after the stocking truck was there. I didn't have that experience of going to a river that there was trout there, but they were a little harder to find. So that was a skill that I had to develop later on after I moved out of that area. And really, it's something I'm still learning. If, if, it's, if it's a spring creek, I'm pretty comfortable doing it. If it is a mountain stream, I'm pretty comfortable doing it. But for bigger freestone waters or even bigger tailwaters, it's still something where I have to sit and say, okay, let me think about this. It just doesn't come second nature. And so if I would have spent more time on maybe less than premier waters, I would have developed those skills of being a better trout prospector to steal the uh, term from Tom Rosenbauer in his book. And that would have paid off across all sorts of circumstances. And a lot of people, that is their experience. They don't grow up in an area. They don't start fishing in an area where there is marked spots where this is where you fish because there are lots of fish here. Just use a fly rod, but this is where you're going to catch fish. You're going to have to try hard, but there are fish here. They just said, this is a river, you know, these 10 miles, this is probably 10 miles where you're going to find fish, but you got to go find them. And there's a lot of reward in that. There's a lot of work in that. But those are the places where you get into really cool wild fish, where you get into really big fish, surprising fish. And I've had those experiences, but they're just not my normal experience. And they weren't the experiences that I 
had as I was growing up fishing. So the first thing is try more water. Don't get spoiled on the good stuff right away. Second thing, plan my gear out better. Plan my gear out better. My first fly rod was probably the perfect fly rod. It was an eight and a half foot five weight from Sports Authority, and it was made out of who knows what. Uh, it was a very cheap fly rod, something like 20 bucks, and it broke. It broke the first time I was out. And so what happened? I went and I exchanged it for another eight and a half foot cheap five weight. And I fished with that rod for a little bit. But then my first real fly rod was a seven foot three weight. And it was so much better than that cheapo. Um, the, the, you know, the $150 fly rod was so much better than a $20 fly rod that I fished with that seven foot three weight almost exclusively. It was perfect for the tiny mountain streams that I often fished in Virginia. It was perfect for the smaller spring creeks that I would fish in the region. And I realized pretty quickly though that there was some limitations when I was fishing for larger fish, fishing with larger flies, needing to make longer casts, or when I was trying to make that transition into warm water fishing. I still was fishing for bass primarily with spinning tackle, but as I realized the fun and some of the different uh, approaches and presentations I could make with fly gear, I realized the limitations of fishing with that seven foot three weight for those warm water fish. So what did I do? I jumped way past that eight and a half foot five weight to a nine foot six weight. And I got a stiffer rod. It was an older sage rod and it's a great rod. It casts beautifully. But what happened? Now I had the seven foot three weight and I had this nine foot six weight. And in my stubbornness, I kind of cast aside that cheap eight and a half foot five weight. But what I did was I really didn't solve that problem I was having on those trout rivers. That nine foot six weight was a little overkill for the streams that I was fishing for, for trout when I was wanting to make longer casts, when I was wanting to make presentations with streamers when I just needed a little bit more reach for nymphing. It was a perfectly serviceable rod, but it was a little bit overkill. So I kind of had this gap, if that makes sense, in my gear. The seven foot three weight did one thing really, really well. The nine foot six weight did something else really, really well. But I, that eight and a half foot five weight was on point for what I needed for a lot of the medium-sized trout rivers in the area. So it wasn't awful. I don't think that I put myself at a disadvantage, but I was having to make some compromises. Now, of course, what I'm not advocating is going out and buying six fly rods right off the bat so that you have everything for every situation. But I probably would have been in a better kind of place if I would have just upgraded the eight and a half foot five weight, or if I would have gotten a lighter, softer nine foot six weight. Now, did I learn to use gear that wasn't ideal and figure out how to make casts and to use different leaders and use different flies and make different presentations in order to adapt to the angling situation that I was in with the gear that I had? Yes, and that's good. That was, that was very helpful. But in hindsight, if I would have maybe gone up to the counter of the fly shop and say, hey, this is the rod I have this is where I fish, what direction could you steer me in? Then that would have maybe given me a better situation. And then I could have gotten that six weight later and have it been an even stiffer six weight so that it would have been an ideal third rod for those warm water situations. 
and for the trout on the even bigger rivers because that's what I find that that six weight wasn't sufficient for throwing really big flies or really long casts on some of the bigger rivers that I started fishing as I was able to get out and uh, get in different places in the country. The big tailwaters, it was a decent rod for dry flies. It wasn't cutting it for smaller streamers and it wasn't doing a great job of nymphing. So I know that's a lot of information and a lot of things that are just particular to my situation, but I think if I would have done a little bit more research, which is tricky if you don't know exactly what you're dealing with and you're just kind of flying by the seat of your pants as a, as a teenager with a limited amount of money, but if I would have talked to some fly shop employees, if I would have talked to the guys I was fishing with from the local Trout Unlimited chapter and really said, hey, this is who I am, this is how I fish, this is my budget, this is what I have already, it probably would have given me a better picture of what kind of stuff to uh, fish with. And I could say the same thing, not just about a rod, but about reels and about line and about waders and about fly boxes and all that sort of stuff. Can you make mistakes? You know, maybe. I would say that there's a bell curve there of a few people really mess up their angling by buying the wrong stuff, and a few people nail it perfectly, but the majority of people are in that middle, and they get something that works the majority of the time. And I would say I was probably there, but could I have done better? Yes, and that would have come from having those conversations and not just assuming because, well, I've watched a few fly fishing shows on Saturday mornings, and I've kind of seen what other people are doing, been really making decisions based upon how things look in a catalog. The better thing to do would be to have those conversations. But of course, like I said, you learn from your mistakes, and you also learn from adapting to the situations that you're in by using the gear that you have in a different way. So I don't want to make it sound like you need the perfect stuff to fish perfectly. You can fish very well with whatever. I'm looking over at the decorative fly rods I have in my office and a bunch of my old bamboo and some of my um, old fiberglass rods. They're seven weights and they're stiff and they're rigid and the tips are really, really soft. But you know what? People fished with those rods to catch 12-inch trout and 20-inch trout and big smallmouth bass and they did it fine and they probably complained because they're people, but they made it work. And so we can make what we have work for us. So plan my gear out better was something I would have appreciated kind of having a, a better perspective on that at that age. And then also, uh, like I said, first thing, trying more water. The third thing is to bring more people along. Bring more people along. Something that I really appreciate about fly fishing today is the relational component of it. Now, I like to be by myself most of the time while I'm fishing. I don't mind driving to the stream with somebody. I don't mind walking along the stream bank with somebody. And every once in a while, I don't mind being within earshot of somebody as as long as the situation kind of permits it. But I like fishing kind of by myself. I just The, the kind of fishing I do, I, I like to be able to move. I like to be able to uh, find my, my way around the stream on my own. Don't like to play that hopscotch, leapfrog, whatever game uh, that you have to do with you on a small stream with somebody. But obviously, if it's somebody I know and it's somebody that we communicate well, even if that doesn't mean talking but kind of know what the other person's doing, then it's fine. And when I started fly fishing, when I was a teenager, this was necessary either because... I didn't have my own car or that was kind of the mandate by parents to go out with somebody so I didn't get lost in the woods by myself. So this is definitely something I did. My buddy Alan and my buddy Jeff 
we fished together a lot, but I never brought anybody else along. And some of that was being content with just kind of having my two fishing partners, but some of it was not thinking that people would really be into what I perceived as a complex activity. And it's interesting. I think that some of that comes from just that stereotype that we still have in 2020 about fly fishing, that it is this real esoteric, contemplative, complex, even uh, fancy, I guess, sport. And it's not that. It's, hey, just uh, flip this thing over there, aim for that pool of water. When there's a splash, pull the hook back, you're going to catch a little trout. Or just get this bluegill popper out there any way you can, and after you'll catch a few fish, we'll start to fine-tune things. And you know what? We can stand here 15 feet from each other, 20 feet from each other, and have a conversation about fishing or about other things. That was not something that I pursued in high school. And there's a a lot going on. I mean, obviously, when you're a teenager, there's a lot of things that you're thinking about. But the same thing was true in college. I took one friend that had never fly fished, fly fishing in college, four years. That was all I did. And I'm not saying I regret it, but how many opportunities did I miss out on? How many fishing opportunities did I miss out on? So, So let me break that down real quick. So not only... Did I miss out on the relational aspect of that, of, of getting closer to, to people or exposing them to fly fishing and all those things and, you know, just changing the atmosphere and the context of the uh, the relationship and the friendship, but also how many people could I have exposed to fly fishing that then would have said, hey, let's go again and created another opportunity for me to go fishing. So one is very much like relational and the other one is not selfish, but it's very fly fishing focused. And I think that if I would have in my friend group, or even if I would have gone outside my friend group to people who were mildly interested in fly fishing, I can think of one example where somebody that I was very, not close with, but just very, very cordial with asked me a question about fly fishing. And I answered them like I was the Casting Across Fly Fishing podcast, like, hey, here's some information. This is sitting in Spanish class in in a, a, a trailer outside of, of the high school. Very, very classy to have the trailers at the high school, by the way. And I answered it like, here's the information that you need, not, oh, let me show you. And why did I do that? Who knows? I can't put myself back in that situation. I remember answering the question. I can't remember my mindset when I answered that question. But to be able to say, well, let's go fly fishing. And you know, now that's a new relationship. It's a new opportunity to fish and really to start a a pattern of taking people out, but then also being able to, as I've said before on the podcast, explain fly fishing in a way that someone else can understand. And in doing so, you force yourself to understand the content of the information that much better. If you know it in your head, but you can't verbalize it, I think that's indicative of not knowing it as well as you think you do. You might not be a gifted communicator, you might not be a gifted teacher, but you should at least be able to articulate what you think you know. And taking people fly fishing is one great way to see the deficiencies in your knowledge and maybe even in your comprehension of some skills that you think you know. Uh, That's maybe more complex than we need to get, but... Taking people fly fishing, whether you're 17 or whether you're 70, uh, is a great way to figure out 
how you're fishing and how you can maybe fish better. A great way to get on the water more, and it's a great way to spend time with people. So that's something I'm, I'm trying to get better at. Now, of course, um, when you've got a family, it's not as easy. But now, who is my main fly fishing buddy source? It's four little boys uh, that I can take out and that I can have some really good conversations with. I can not just uh, train them as little anglers, but I can disciple them as, as young men. And, of course, i got plenty of other people in my life I could do that with once I have opportunities. So those are the three things that I wish I would have known then. There were things I was probably aware of, but I just didn't do as well. And you can probably say the same thing too. Trying more water, breaking out of the, the norm, uh, moving into other options. Plan your gear out better. Do research, but also look out for recommendations so that you're not spending money and you're not spending time on the water with things that really aren't the best or really aren't optimal. And then thirdly, bringing more people along. It's fun, but it forces you to learn and fish better. Anything come to mind while you're listening? Uh, things that you wish you would have known about in fly fishing when you first started, whether that be last year or uh, decades ago? Then let me know, Matthew at castingacross.com. I'd be really interested to hear uh, things that you would put in this category. And again, go back and listen to that first podcast. There will be a link to that one in the show notes on castingacross.com. This week on the podcast, the first article was actually a video called How to Choose Your Waiting Boots. It's actually called Video, How to Choose Your Waiting Boots. And I walk through three styles of waiting footwear, normal fly fishing boots, heavy-duty fly fishing boots, and a waiting shoe. Talk about the pros and cons, show a few of the pairs that I have, and just give you kind of a, a like going back to my second point of, of making sure that you have the right material for the job. You know, you don't want to get something that's not going to be a good fit for what you are doing. You're going to maybe have to make some sacrifices and compromises, but if you make a good choice, then something like a wading boot is not only going to give you more safety, but it's also going to give you more comfort, which means more time on the water. So check out that video. It's short. It's like six minutes long, and it's me holding shoes. What could be better? Then Wednesday's article was called Eyes on the Trout Tchotchke. Eyes on the Trout Tchotchke. And so there's so many knickknacks in fly fishing. I'm in my office. I'm looking around, and there's little figurines, and there's little picture frames, and there's just all sorts of little junk. And some of it is that it's junk, but some of it, it means something. It links you to a memory or a moment or a person or a fish. And so this is just a quick little article that talks about that. And there's also a, a picture of some of my favorite stuff that I wear. It's got function as well as fly fishing form. This week's recommendation is the Reddington Zero. The Reddington Zero is an incredibly lightweight reel, one of the lightest ones on the market and certainly the lightest for its price category. It comes in at $100. There's one for the 2.3 and one for the 4.5. So these are going to be trout and panfish reels. Now they are die cast and they feature a spring-loaded click drag, but they are more than you need for most trout and light warm water situations. Now. The best thing about this reel, in my opinion, is the fact that it is weightless. I mean, the 2.3 the comes in at 2.7 ounces, and the 4.5 comes in at 3 ounces. Now, why is this good? Why do you want a weightless reel? Well, a lot of rods in that 2, 3, 4, 5 
category that are built for finesse, built for very light touch, light presentations, that they feel so incredibly light in your hand. If you pair them with a big, clunky aluminum disc drag reel, it's going to throw everything off. Now, is it still functional? Yes. But is it going to feel as good in your hand? And is it going to retain that sense of touch and feel and presentation as it would if you had a lightweight reel? No, you're going to lose something if you throw something big and heavy on there. And let's be real, disc drags are awesome and for big fish they are essential. But for most two, three, four, and five weight trout on medium-sized rivers, you're not going to need a big disc drag. You should be able to manage just palming that reel. And that click gives you the resistance that you need. So anyway, all that to say, the Zero from Reddington is a great reel to pair with that ultralight fiberglass or graphite rod. It uh, looks sharp. It, the, the design is the, you can only achieve this kind of design with that die cast uh, building technique. And so it is a great reel that is comfortable. It looks sharp and it works well. And I, again, I would say the, the best thing about it is that this is the reel to use to balance out that incredibly lightweight fly rod. I'll throw a link to Reddington Zero on my show notes of this podcast at castingacross.com. Thanks for listening to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. Please subscribe in your favorite podcast app and then rate the podcast on iTunes. Then head over to castingacross.com where you'll find more info on this podcast and three posts a week on the people, places, and things that go into the pursuit of fish. Thank you.